We are continuing this morning our sermon, summer sermon series on the letter of James. You will remember that James was most likely the brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, was very familiar with who Jesus was and what he taught, and that this letter of James was written probably in the specific years in the New Testament time when the Jewish church, the Jewish Christians, were being driven out of Jerusalem through persecution were a migrant community or migrant communities going out into the different places scattered around and finding themselves having to build up new lives in new places and running into uh, conflict and difficulties there. And so we've been going through the book of James, the letter of James, from that perspective. This Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to read passages in which James goes nuclear against rich people. And so he goes nuclear against us, because we're all rich people. We are in the 1% of wealth, doesn't matter what your income here is, the 1% of wealth of all people who've ever lived in the whole uh, existence of the earth. That's us right here. So when James is going nuclear, he's going nuclear against us. So be ready. This week is going to be a little easier than next week, I can promise you now. Let's uh, look at James chapter 3, verse 13. If you have a Bible, feel free to open it, or else um, it'll appear on your screen. I'm sorry, it's not chapter 3, it's chapter 4. Chapter 4. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, so come now, everybody. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We're going to go do this or that and the other thing. We're going to make a profit. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to trade. Don't you know that your life is but a mist? And if James were writing in, well, this particular thing is from 1973, but if he were writing today, he might put it in words something like this. Isn't that the way 
Sing for the laughter, sing for the tear. Sing with me if it's just for today. Maybe tomorrow the good Lord will take you away. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. We're going to go here, there, and everywhere. We're going to invent this, produce that, and sell more widgets. And James says, come on now, who are you kidding? You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is not much more than a mist, a vapor, here one moment, and gone the next. Now, as I think about us sitting here, as I've said a number of times as we've gone through James, it's hard, hard to apply this to us. Because I don't see a group of people, I don't know a group of people who are running around frantically looking to earn the next dollar, looking to fill the barn, looking to build a bigger barn, and doing everything we can to sell and to buy and, 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 and make ourselves as wealthy as possible. I, that's just not us. I don't see that. Some of you may be like that, and it's pretty well hidden. But I really don't see that. Most of us have things pretty well together, and rightfully so. And we're pretty content with what we have. I don't see a lot of discontented people. So how do we, how do we apply this to us today? And I'd like to make a couple of suggestions. They might go in directions that you don't expect. The first one is this. In your coming and going, trading, making a profit, making a living, living, pay attention the best you can that you're not oppressing, abusing, taking advantage of others, especially the poor and the marginalized, and those over whom you have power. I'm not going to go into that anymore because James does that in the next section. That's where he really goes nuclear. So you have to come back next week for that part. But I'd like to suggest something else. And that is that some of us, and I'm paraphrasing here the famous quote from Martha Fuller, who was a journalist, a women's rights advocate in the 19th century, that some of us are focused so much on making a living that we're not living. We're busy, running around, we're doing good things, and basically our attitude about those things is okay. But for some reason, we have forgotten to actually live. And I ran across an article this week in The Guardian, July 7, 2022, an interview by the famous, well, I don't know how famous she is, but I follow her a lot, Rebecca Solnit. She interviews David Harrington, who is the founder and artistic director of San Francisco's Kronos Quartet. And she reflects on the violin that he uses. This violin was made, I think it's a Stradivarius, don't quote me on that, I've 
forgotten a little detail right now. But this violin was made, it's not this one, this violin was made in 1721. Almost, is that 400 years ago? Or 300? 300, I think. 1721. And she reflects on that violin, and she uses these words. This violin is from before. Before James Watt made the steam engine a voracious, ubiquitous device devouring coal and wood and then oil, driving mills, looms, pumps, then locomotive and steamboat engines. Before we began gouging out the earth so frantically to feed those steam engines and then those internal combustion engines. Before we dug out so much of the carbon that plants had so beautifully sequestered deep in the earth eons ago, before human impact exploded into a destructive force with the power to change the acidity of the oceans and the content of the atmosphere. The sheer thrift of an instrument lasting so long said to me, that maybe you could have magnificent culture with material modesty that the world before all our fossil fuel extraction and burning could be plenty elegant and maybe that the world we need to make in response to climate change can feel like one of abundance, not of austerity. And then here it comes. We tend to think of abundance as material stuff. And perhaps our piles of loot overshadow less tangible things that also matter, including community with the past, confidence in the future, and the cultural richness that is not just a commodity. And I wonder if James would say to us today, ask us the question, are you living? Where is that violin made 300 years ago in your life? In all the busyness. Where are you stopping to experience, to experience God, to experience each other, to experience the creation in continuity with the past, connected to the present, confident in the future, and enjoying, reveling in this cultural commodity, this cultural richness that's not just something you can buy and sell. I wonder if James might say something like that to us. And then there's a third thing. And this is maybe going a little further way off into a side track, but try to follow me here. We as Western Christians are deeply immersed in what some people have called a theology of triumphalism. That is, that we believe 
that if we believe the right things and we do the right things and we work hard enough, everything is going to turn out okay. The victory is going to come in the end. And I found an article by a um, professed by the pastor of professoral the profess, by the professor of pastoral care at Calvin Seminary. His name is Donjuma Gibson. Before I show his quote, I want to make a comment on his first name, Donjuma, D-A-N-J-U-M-A. That's a Nigerian name. I know it. I looked him up. He wasn't born in Nigeria. I think he was born in Chicago, but he's got Nigerian roots because his first name, Donjuma, in Hausa means the son of Juma. Don is the word for son. So I know all that. That's just interesting. That's for what it's worth. That just fascinated me. But anyway, he's professor of pastoral care at Calvin Seminary, and he wrote an article called Christian Triumphalism, the Antithesis to Trauma Recovery. He's focusing on trauma, re- trauma recovery, but it has application to what we're talking about. Here's his quote. Here in the West... We tend to believe that Christian faith should yield a certain level of safety, comfort, success, and livelihood in this lifetime. And we do. We believe that if we follow the Christian faith, that will yield us a certain level of comfort, safety, success, and livelihood. And that's what our prayers are directed to. Father God, please give us what will keep us safe and healthy and well. The inverse and more latent version of this unspoken proposition is that we believe relative success as measured by Western standards equates to evidence of God's affirmation of us. The fact that I am not worried about my retirement right now is because God loves me. He loves me because I've believed and done what he said I should believe and do. And this is rooted in our Americanism. It's rooted in our uh, Christianity, which oftentimes are, are well weaved, woven together. And then he goes on, Christian faith is not meant to provide us with a competitive advantage toward attaining the American dream. Evidence of faith is not superficial happiness. True faith should bring us closer to God and set the stage for a robust love of our neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable. Dismantling Narratives of Christian triumphalism can help the church become a community for trauma recovery. That's the focus of this article, but I would say a community for anything. can help us become community, full stop, period. I wonder if James would poke at us and say, you people, you American Christians, you think that if you believe this, and do that, and work hard enough, and pray hard enough, and pray long enough, and use the right words, that everything is going to turn out okay. 
It's deeply woven into our DNA as Americans and as Christians. What happens when you can't go and invent and produce and sell your widgets and make a profit? What happens when illness stands in the way? What happens when the addiction stands in the way? What happens when that relationship doesn't work like it was supposed to work? What happens when the poor decisions that you made in the past have set your life on a, on a path that can't be changed? What happens when you see on your TV the war that just will not stop? The injustice of our society and our world. The destruction of our climate and its consequences. And all of a sudden you have this triumphalistic faith. And then you have the reality of life. What happens then? And what has our faith taught us about this aspect, about the despair aspect? And being talked about much more today is this another kind of theology. It's called theology of presence or incarnation theology that in our despair, that essential to the Christian faith, essential to the message of the Scriptures, is that God has come in Jesus to be with us. That Jesus left the heavens, left his place with God, took on human flesh, took on human form, emptied himself, as the New Testament says, and now walks with us and goes through our life, and goes through the successes of making and selling the widgets, and goes through the despair of standing in that grave, or lying in that sickbed, or deeply weeping because of that broken relationship. The physical presence of Jesus Christ becoming human and pitching his tent among us. He chose being among his creation as the most effective way to demonstrate his love for us. And note very carefully, it's that we are staying in the presence of God, but that God, through Jesus and through his Spirit, is staying in our presence over every mountaintop, every widget that you sell, and every valley through which you go. Jesus Christ is with you. And I wonder if James isn't prodding us to say, the success is great, but what happens when it isn't working? Have you American Christians thought about that? And then James goes on and he says, instead of boasting about tomorrow, instead of a headlong rush to make more widgets and destroy our environment as we do that, instead of letting despair have the last word, 
Then we go to James 4.15. Thanks, Christopher. James says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I'm not going to go into this this morning, but if you've been in the church at all, or if you've read or done any theology at all, you know that there's a lot of discussions about this and the, and the so-called sovereignty of God. Over what does God have control? Over what kind of details? That's a very valuable discussion. I'm not going to do it here. We just don't have time for it. What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that when James says, if the Lord wills, He's thinking, again, as I referred to last, last week, he's thinking of his brother Jesus and that prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your what? Your will be done on earth as it is. In heaven, James, I think, is not so much here talking about the sovereignty of God. Does God control every little detail of your lives? Maybe that's in there somewhere. But I think what James is saying is the Lord's will, as you sell your widgets, as you invent, make, produce, and sell your widgets. Think about what the Lord's will is. How does the Lord want you to do that? What's the purpose for doing it? Where does it lead to? And obviously the biblical example for that is shalom. This, this, this biblical concept of life that's full of peace, that's full of justice, in community that's connected to God, that's connected to each other with this web of belonging, that's connected to the creation in intimate ways, that doesn't exploit, that doesn't forget to live while making a living, that finds comfort in despair, not because that despair is solved, but because you don't go through it alone. So when you're inventing, producing, and selling your widgets, could you think, what's the Lord's will with these widgets? What does He want? And do these widgets promote shalom? My favorite psalm in the whole world, in the whole Bible, in the whole book of Psalms, is Psalm 27. I don't have time this morning to read the whole thing, but I want to just put a couple verses out of in front of you and then encourage you to read the whole thing. This is a psalm of David who knew the ups and downs, who sold a ton of widgets and knew the deep valleys of despair and the, and the attack of enemies and the threats on his life and the broken relationships and the sin of himself and of all the people around him. He wrote this wonderful psalm. Just a couple of verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom 
shall I fear? He's the stronghold. He's this castle. He's this foundation. He's this hiding place. The place within which I can be safe. And if I'm with him in that place, what in the end and who in the end should I finally fear? What if I don't sell enough widgets? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. You see how this cuts, cuts through this criticism of James that we're going after the widgets, that we're making a living and forgetting to live. One thing have I asked, that I may dwell in the house. Again, a place of safety, a place of the presence of God. And to gaze upon his beauty, to hear that violin that was made in 1721. Or whatever other thing moves you. For me, it's dream on. And the violin, by the way. I was listening to some violin concertos last night because of this. How are you living in the beauty of the Lord as you invent, produce, and sell your widgets? And then this conclusion of the psalm. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It doesn't say, I believe that my problems will be solved. It doesn't say, I believe that I'm really going to be able to sell enough widgets to build a bigger barn. It doesn't say, I believe that this sickness is going to be cured. It doesn't say, I believe that this war is going to be over. It doesn't say anything triumphalistic. It says, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord. As your cash register is ringing, and as you're weeping at midnight, in the darkness because of the sorrow and everywhere in between there I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in this world with all of the brokenness that there is starting with the brokenness that's in me going all the way out to the individual, personal, family, community, and systemic brokenness and, and, and injustice that there is. James is saying, the goodness of the Lord, the Lord's will, this shalom, is where your focus should be. And not should in the sense of a law, not should, should in the sense of if you don't do this, I'm going to beat you up. But goodness in the sense of 
This is where it's good. This is where it's good. And this is where some measure of hope and peace and maybe even joy can be found as we sing hallelujah in the midst of our lives as they are. You look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of. You either raise your fists or you say hallelujah. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? And even though 